News, politics, and special guests with a Texas twist. That's the goal of the Luke Macias Show. Our nation and state are at a crossroads, and if you're not informed, you're not equipped to make the change that our community needs. Join the conversation and join the cause for liberty today. Welcome to episode 21 of the Luke Messiah Show. I am joined by my co-host, Raz Schaefer. Raz, I've missed you for a couple weeks. How are you doing? I miss you too, brother. It's great to be back. Um, so guys, today we have a treat. We are um, bringing you a conversation that Paul Hastings had. Paul Hastings is a friend of mine and a friend of Raz's who has a podcast of his own called Compelled. You can visit and find out more information there uh, at compelledpodcast.com. And so he had a discussion with an attorney, David Gibbs, and David was the attorney for Terry Schiavo um, when her life was tragically ended and the government essentially um, allowed for life-sustaining treatment to be removed from her. Um, this is a long discussion with David. Raz uh, had time to listen to it as well. Uh, we'll get his feedback, but I'll tell you it's it's a powerful conversation. The reason I wanted to bring it to so many of you is because uh, you know, the end of life issue is becoming a more prevalent issue. And honestly, I can guarantee you that as a state, we are going to be dealing with issues like this for the next several years. And the legislature will have to address this. We had advanced directives reform that passed the Texas Senate this last session and failed to pass in the Texas House. Uh, Most Texans don't know that state law allows for hospitals to refuse to provide life-saving treatment to um, their patients if they deem your life uh, not worth living. And so the reality is that this causes a lot of ethical dilemmas that um, Texas Right to Life has spearheaded reform for um, to protect patients and preserve and honestly value life. And so um, this is a conversation with David and and was a very powerful conversation. I think many of y'all will really enjoy it. I'm grateful for Paul for sending over the conversation so we could bring it to you today. Raz, what were some of your key takeaways from the conversation? Honestly, Luke, it was, it was really eye-opening for me. I remember as a early teenager, just 13 or 14 at the time, following this case closely, it was, as David mentions, it was in the front and center of national news, even being a Florida case. Uh, Congress was involved, the president was involved, uh, the, the governor of Florida was involved, and uh, I, I, there were a lot of things he talked about that I just don't recall being, being shared during that time, being front and center that were important parts of the case, that I don't recall even being yeah. highlighted by conservative and, and Christian news sources and organizations that, that I think were really important as far as uh, Terry's condition and how, how, uh, how cognizant she was, how responsive she was. And, and really a lot of the details just kind of blew my mind because it changed a lot of what I've believed about the case for, you know, 20 some years now. Yep. Absolutely. Before we get to that conversation, there's one quick update I wanted to give everybody. Uh, getting you know along the lines of the uh, culture of life that we have in our state, Wascom City, which is a small little East Texas city, um, voted unanimously as a city council uh, to pass an ordinance protecting preborn children and declaring abortion unlawful in their city. And this is relevant uh, to Texans for two reasons. One. 
is that Jonathan Sticklin actually filed an amendment on Senate Bill 22, which dealt with uh, whether or not cities could contract with abortion providers. And this amendment passed. Um, I, without going into a lot of details, and maybe we'll talk about this later, or maybe we'll have Jonathan on to talk about it, but he received a significant amount of pressure from Republicans in his own party to pull down his amendment. And then there was even discussion on the Texas Senate at one point about whether the amendment should even be kept on the bill or whether a motion to appoint a conference to strip this language out of the bill should be appointed. Senator Donna Campbell stood her ground and accepted the amendment and pushed this bill through, um, and Governor Abbott signed it into law. But Jonathan added simple language into Senate Bill 22 that simply said that this chapter, the chapter that dealt with cities and what they could do with abortion providers, may not be construed to restrict a municipality or county from prohibiting abortion. And so he specifically put language into state law to try to let cities know that the state of Texas is not telling you you can't take action against abortion. We're telling you you can't um, contract with abortion providers. And Wascom City uh, took that seriously because, unfortunately, uh, many of the surrounding states are have decided to become much more pro-life than the state of Texas. And we've talked about that a little bit here on this podcast. But um, there's concern that an abortion facility in Shreveport might actually look at relocating its facility to Texas so that women who are in Louisiana can come across the border to Texas to abort their children. And uh, that's just a sad testimony of where our state is. And uh, hopefully we get lawmakers that start to step up and say that we're going to make sure that that cannot and will not happen. Um, and so Wascom City is doing its part. It passed a ordinance saying abortion is unlawful within our city. And so uh, you can go to texasrighttolife.com to read more about that. Um, and so, uh, I just think it's something that Texans need to be aware of and continue to encourage um, other city councils and counties around the state to take positions on so that that can continue to put pressure on the legislature to establish a statewide state standard that preserves life, either at the start of a heartbeat or abolishing it um, to pass stronger pro-life laws. Um, just wanted to give a quick update on that before getting to the discussion, but thank you so much for continuing to engage in the podcast. And with that, let's go straight to the conversation between Paul Hastings and David Gibbs. Okay. You ready to have the outro? Yep. Raz? Okay. Then we went through um, searches that would be more akin to going into a prison. No cameras, no phones, nothing that could document what was happening to Terry or provide support for her. And then walking in, there's armed law enforcement with one simple instruction, arrest the mother if she does anything to keep her daughter alive. I'm Paul Hastings and you're listening to Compelled. Real people telling true stories about God's compelling love working in their lives. I'll tell you more about Compelled and share a sneak peek of next week's episode right after our story. I'll also share an opportunity at the end of our show for listeners to win an autographed book from today's guest. As a word of caution, today's story deals with the tragic topic of euthanasia and may not be suitable for younger listeners. Our guest is David Gibbs, the founder of the National Center for Life and Liberty and an attorney who's been called to a very unlikely mission field, the American justice system. As David will share, all humans are created in the likeness of a creator God who has placed a calling on all Christians to care for the least of these. We hope you enjoy. 
I'm blessed to be here with David Gibbs III, an attorney. Uh, and David, can you just go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a little about who you are? Well, Paul, absolutely. Uh, I'm an attorney. I'm an old Duke Law grad back from 1993. And uh, I go into a legal missionary work. And a lot of people think lawyer and missionary, how do you mix those yeah. up? But uh, my work on a daily basis is in the courtroom. I do a lot of work defending Christian liberty, churches, nonprofit organization, parental rights. And then I also work in the government, trying to influence our government in a few arenas, certainly on faith and family issues, do some Fox News consulting, as well as uh, preaching in churches and doing seminars. And so uh, I stay busy. Uh, the organization's the National Center for Life and Liberty, and uh, we have kind of a simple motto that uh, sort of encapsulates our world. Uh, if it's wrong, fight it, and if it's right, fight for it. Yeah, that's great. How did you become, as you termed, a legal missionary? How did that happen? Uh, my father was an attorney, so I'm second-generation lawyer, and uh, he was just a practicing attorney actually in Cleveland, Ohio, and uh, a pastor approached him, and this is way back in the 70s, and said, you know, I've been sued for the faith, and, you know, my dad was a young attorney, and he was like, no, you, you know, you're misreading something, you know, this is America, we have a constitution, you have rights, you can't be sued for the faith in America, and the pastor's like, no, I, I have. Can I come to your office? And uh, the pastor and the parents were running this very small school. And uh, in the 70s, the state of Ohio said, we hold a monopoly on education. Okay, we, you don't have state-certified teachers. You don't have state-approved curriculum. You're not doing it the way we want you to do it. And you haven't sought our permission. And so we are now coming against you. Well, that was one of the early cases yeah. where... Uh, educational freedom, as we would call it, for parents and churches and people of faith versus maybe a government monopoly, which is really what was in place. Uh, we had private schools, but the government certified, approved, and essentially controlled all education. So my dad sort of stumbles into this and um, became convinced over time that he was wrong and that the state was wrong and the pastor was right. Yeah. And so my dad became the lawyer for this gentleman, and they began a journey that would ultimately result in success. And, and there were other cases, you know, the, the Amish started to have a case, and then a few years later, there were some early homeschool cases. And so it was kind of what we might call that 1970s, there were thousands of matters, issues, cases that went forward and ultimately culminated with uh, faith-based education, homeschool education, and private school education, if it's done as a matter of faith, being exempt or um, constitutionally protected from government control. And so uh, as my dad got involved in this, it began to engulf more and more of his life. So I grew up as a kid. Um, I remember distinctly meeting a number of pastors. And I mean, these are you know, back in the 70s, everybody wore a suit. You know, that was, you know, so these are nice-looking guys in a suit. Yeah. And they're sitting in a jail cell. Wow. And, and it was like, you know, I remember some hearings. Back then, kids, children weren't allowed in the courtroom. So I'd be in the hallway with these uh, children, and um, I would look around, and these other kids had these grocery bags full of their blankets, some clothes, some teddy bears, some of their toys. And some of these children were there knowing that if their parents didn't prevail in court or their church was unsuccessful, uh, that they were going to be taken into state custody. 
Oh my goodness. And their parents didn't want them to be, you know, without maybe, you know, basic things that they would need if they lost the custody of their children. And so, um, you know, I look back at those um, pastors, I look back at those parents, they took a strong stand because they believed it was right uh, that they would be able to give their children a faith-based education. And so watching that as a child, um, I went to law school with the distinct goal of wanting to be involved. And so um, I believe uh, pastors are called, I believe missionaries are called, um, you know, people will be called to business, different vocations. And, and so I just knew that the Lord wanted me to step into this arena and to uh, really serve his people yeah. uh, with their legal needs. Okay, so, so let's walk forward from, so 1993, you graduated from Duke Law. I know that from meeting you previously that you became involved in a very significant case uh, in the pro-life community. Uh, maybe uh, 10 years into your legal career. Can you kind of tell us about that experience and that journey? Terry Shivo. Originally, Terry collapses in 91, and the family united to basically take care of her. Okay, and they, and I didn't know her back then, so I'm just telling you what I was relayed to by the parents, that, you know, she was working on parallel bars, she was getting her ability to speak uh, more clearly back, and was making tremendous progress. And that's not uncommon with the brain-injured individual, um, that there is significant progress in the early stages. Michael Shivo, the husband, um, proceeds to sue a number of doctors, okay? And his allegations, and again, we're just kind of going back in history, were, you know, if you'd have done a better job monitoring, caring, looking after my wife, she would not have had this great disability. What proceeds to happen is... Uh, he didn't get the $25 million, but a couple million dollars was awarded. And, um, and then all of a sudden, a few things happened. The money came in, and it was in a trust account for Terry. Michael got a couple hundred thousand, but, you know, there's a few million over there that would be his if she were dead. Mm. And then he got a girlfriend. And I think the combination of the money and the girlfriend certainly changed his motivation. And all of a sudden, Michael Shivo says, you know what? And this is after he told a jury he was going to care for his wife, he needed all this money for therapy. He flip-flops. And he says, you know what? Terry wouldn't want to live like this. She's disabled. And we need to move to end her life. I mean, people go, well, that girl's on life support. She was, you know, barely alive. And I would just want them to understand three things. And number one, Terry was as alive as you and I. Hmm. Okay, she was disabled. But, I mean, she could function, she could understand, she could communicate at some level. So, I mean, she's alive. Number two, important point, she wasn't sick. If somebody has cancer or Alzheimer's, I mean, there's a natural uh, death process. But with Terry, there was no disease, no cancer, no Alzheimer's, no heart disease. She's healthy. So she's alive, she's not sick. And then number three, all she needed was food and water to stay alive. Terry didn't need help breathing. She breathed on her own. Terry didn't need it. Terry could actually eat. Um, I mean, you could give her food and water. It was just slow. And so they would use, you know, IVs or feeding tubes to, you know, make it less onerous. But, but she could chew and swallow on her own. I watched her. Yeah, she sure could. Now, what the judge did, and there were a lot of issues, and we won't go, you know, we, we could spend weeks just talking about the details. Yeah. The judge appointed a guardian ad litem, which is an individual that's supposed to look out for Terry. Well, the guardian goes over there, sees Terry, says, well, she's alive. She's fine. You know, you can't kill this person. And kind of interesting, the judge dismisses the guardian, says, we don't need your services, and appoints himself 
as both judge and guardian, which is a little unusual. Wow. Florida allows that, but most states question the, if you're going to be the decision maker, you don't really want to be the guardian. Additionally, the judge never went to see Terry. Never went to see Terry. Never laid eyes on her, never brought her to court. So he then proceeds to be the individual that's going to decide whether she lives or dies without ever seeing her. So this is kind of how this case germinates. Okay. The judge then issues what we might call a death order, says, yeah, it's okay, we can kill her. And it was interesting. I wasn't there. There were some lawyers, and and there were some good people involved, you know, know, working on this issue. And and the family's just confused. They're like, well, he was going to take care of her, and I was trying to kill her. What's going on? How do we do this? And it was a little unfair. The family has no money because they've done everything for their daughter. Michael Schiavo has a couple million dollars, of money that he's using to fund basically the death of Terry. So it was kind of an inequitable battle, oh shall my goodness. we say. And um, at this point, you know, the case moves along and the courts are allowing her to die. Um, that's when I met them. And I will be very honest, Paul, I thought it was a career ender for me. I mean, this girl's going to die. It hadn't really hit the news media because it was just kind of a, you know, a low-level thing in Florida, and it was just kind of perking along, and it just looked like, you know, this was all over. And, and Bob Schindler sat in my office at midnight. All his lawyers had either quit or just exhausted out. I mean, they were doing a lot of this for free, and, I mean, they were just, you know, very disappointed where things were at. And how did Bob find you? Um, it was actually somebody through a church said, you ought to talk to David Gibbs. Maybe he could help you. And so he sat there, and I'd never forget what he said. He said, David, I know it looks pretty bad, but he said, if there's anything you can do to save my girl, I'd sure appreciate it. And I said, well, Bob, we're going to sure try, but, I mean, you do realize this is, you know, we're in the Hail Mary part of the ball game. I mean, this is last minute, you know, we're going to try, but, I mean, it's going to be difficult. And he said, but if they end up killing her, will you make sure everybody knows what happened? So what happened, Paul, is we got involved, and – um We threw everything we could at it legally, which did definitely lengthen Terry's life by a number of years. But what added and created the media storm was the politicians in both the state of Florida and in Washington, D.C. got involved. Um, And it was an interesting time. Jeb Bush was the governor of the state of Florida, and his brother, George Bush, was the president of the United States. So we had a family connection. Okay. And... Uh, Jeb was very concerned about what was happening and tried to work through some things in the state of Florida and established, you know, hey, I'll be the guardian. Let me look at this. And, and was trying to protect her life. And you see in all the, the court movements that the elected leaders were concerned about the life of this disabled girl. Okay. The courts, and this is unfortunate, were more concerned about their power hey, this guy, he said she should die. Yeah, he didn't see her, but court authority. And so that played out and ended up before the Florida Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court struck it down and said, no, we're going to let her die. Wow. Well, then Congress got involved. Okay, now the thing went orbital. I mean, we're worldwide news. I mean, we're on every talk show in the whole world. I mean, this and the Congress flew in and um, basically passed a law to try to help protect Terry Schiavo. Jeb, or excuse me, George Bush, Jeb Bush's brother, flew back from Crawford, Texas, to be in Washington to sign it. I was in a courthouse in the middle of the night 
You know, I mean, this was a wild moment. Wow. Um, our case would actually set a record. Um, the American Bar Association notified me that we went before the Supreme Court twice in 10 days, which is almost impossible. Wow. Um, they waived all the printing requirements. We were emailing into justices' homes. It was a different world. Did you deliver the oral arguments yourself then? We were, well, the, the Terry Schiavo case moved so fast. It was on three-hour briefing schedules and rulings. So the answer is there were no oral arguments. We were actually doing it before the court. I mean, it was kind of like hit, print, send. The other side had two hours, hit, print, send. Oh, my goodness. And the court was ruling within hours because it was, she was dying. They had removed her food and water. They had already removed the food and, and water. And that is what had us in this um, very rushed standpoint. And it's the only issue in my lifetime that uh, Jesse Jackson and Rush Limbaugh agreed on. Hmm. Uh, they were very both supportive of protecting Terry's life. And it was heavily supported by the Democrats also uh, as a disability case. They were very concerned about the rights of the disabled. And it went through the Senate uh, unanimously uh, with names like Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, before he passed away, uh, Senator Kennedy. Um, I mean, any senator could have stopped us. So the Democrats were viewing it as a disability case. Now, Barack Obama would later call it a, the biggest mistake he made. Wow. Um, but nonetheless, um, the Democrats were very supportive. And then the Republicans, also concerned about the disabled, but also with a pro-life perspective, and, you know, one of the issues that bothered a lot of people is if Terry had been convicted of criminal acts, a murder of capital uh, punishment, um, she would have her own lawyer, she would have years of appeal, she would be entitled to lots of protection just because Supreme Court understands death is different, it's irreversible, it's, you know, it's something we'd rather not make a mistake. And so... Um, Terry never got her own lawyer, never got any reviews, never got any protection. Why? She didn't murder anybody. So at the end of the day, you know, was Terry disabled? Sure. I mean, her arms didn't, you know, she wasn't able to put food in her own mouth. Um, she wasn't able to walk. Um, she had brain injury. But was she alive, functioning, reactive, and was she also um, in pretty good health? The answer is yes. So at a level, um, I use the word she was a perfect storm to really challenge, you know, really where is our nation at? There was probably the most indelible moments in my life were watching um, Terry die. And, like, I was in there with Mary, the mother, the last time she'd see her daughter alive. And it was quite onerous, um, just so folks understand, this is not some third-world country. Uh, this was in the United States. I mean, to go see Terry, there were multiple security checks. I mean, we were all over TV at this point, but we had to show photo IDs. Then we went through um, searches that would be more akin to going into a prison. I mean, full body. I mean, if you don't want to be touched, then you're not going in. Totally emptying your pockets. I mean, you're not going to carry a mint. You're not going to carry anything that could, no cameras, no phones, nothing that could document what was happening to Terry or provide support for her. And then walking in, there's armed law enforcement with one simple instruction, arrest the mother if she does anything to keep her daughter alive. Now, these were gracious police officers, but, I mean, they know what their job is, and they were, I think, a little embarrassed to be there, but this was the mandate. So we would 
walked down the hallway and, um, you know, when we went into the room, law enforcement following, um, I thought for a moment and I was confused. I thought, did they put her on a ventilator? And I thought, well, that doesn't make sense. And then I thought, well, did the air conditioner go out? I mean, what's, what's this noise? And then I realized it was Terry breathing. When you move closer to death, um, you move into that real heavy labored, you know, almost a, a gasping, jumping to your breath very mechanical and very labored. And, and I, I knew Terry was struggling and, and I would kind of walk to the foot of the bed. Mary would go up by her daughter and, and I had seen Paul, um, you know, dry skin, I mean, sunburn or you can peel. And, and again, the water coming out of your system makes your, uh, makes you kind of flaky. Um, I had never seen a totally dry mouth, like where the lips were peeling or the tongue. And, as I would watch Mary begin to cry and hug her daughter, and she would say things like, you know, Terry, you're not alone. I'm here with David. Um, you know, you're going to be with Jesus soon. And then she would start to pray, oh, God, don't let my daughter suffer. And and then she'd Terry, were, and, and she would kind of go back and forth. And I would watch the tears of this broken mother hit the dry skin of her daughter and almost kind of like run down her cheek. And I remember almost a surreal moment just standing there watching this, not believing that this was reality, and yet there it was before my eyes. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, this isn't what our founding fathers sacrificed their lives, their fortunes, their families for. Uh, This isn't what those military families have empty chairs at holidays and and brothers and fathers and daughters that don't come home. Um, this isn't what they paid those prices for. And here's what I'm watching in our country. And I don't really know, Paul, how long we're in there. It was probably 20 or 30 minutes, and then Mary would step out, and that would be the last time she would see her daughter. And I would rejoin her in the hallway, and she was kind of, again, we didn't have lot to dally and one of the officers handed her a tissue and she was wiping her eyes and and never forget she says David I'm no lawyer and I'm no doctor but she said what I can't understand why do they have to kill my little girl that's probably the haunting thing of the Shivo case that you know really never got answered I mean if you look yeah. at it you know here's a husband that could have divorced and moved on, parents want to take care of her. You know, why did they insist that she had to die? And so I do think the Shivo case, um, you know, it, again, I'll, I'll be candid. Um, I fought hard for that young lady to live and uh, ultimately would say with all the efforts from the president to the Congress to the best we could muster, um, we were unsuccessful. And so on March 31st, 2005, I had the very sad um, responsibility to announce to the world uh, that Terry Schiavo had died uh, after 13 days uh, without food and water. Man, I, I can't even believe how incredibly hard that must have been. Uh, obviously, it's a terrible tragedy, yet I know that God still has a plan through even the worst of times. Um, have you seen any good come out of this horrible situation? I do believe that case has opened a lot of people's eyes and minds to you know, how do we handle these issues? But I fear a little bit, Paul, that we just don't value the less than perfect 
in a way that's appropriate. And ultimately, how you value less than perfect people ultimately becomes how you value any person. A lot of folks have bought into what I will call a lie. And the lie is if you don't have sufficient quality of life, your life isn't worth living. Yeah. And I disagree with that. I think every life has value that uh, human beings are not, as the evolutionists would want you to believe, just sophisticated animals operating on high level instinct. But we are made in the image of a creator God. And with that image, we have personality, we have interest, we have passion, we have choice, we have a will. And so I believe human life is not just extraordinary, but it's made in the image of God and is to be protected. That's one of the reasons why uh, the National Center, we didn't just talk about being the National Center for Liberty or the National Center for Rights. We wanted to make sure that like our founders, people understood we are the National Center for Life and Liberty. That if you don't protect innocent life, you really have no freedom. And our founders came from England. And in England, the king held life and death in his hands, which meant, you know, if the king said, off with your head, not a good day for you or anybody else yeah. that he said, because <laughs> the, the government held this ultimate authoritarian ability over life and death. Yeah. And our founders, when they came over here, certainly they wanted freedom and they wanted religion and they wanted, you know, the ability to function. But they realized if the government can kill you, you have no true freedom. That's why they didn't talk about liberty in the pursuit of happiness. They said life liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And I remind folks, if you don't protect innocent life, you truly have no freedom. Yeah. I mean, if the government's going to kill you, does your speech or your religion or many other things that you might enjoy as protected rights matter if your life isn't being protected? And most folks will go, well, of course not. And our government at least at this point, isn't going to have, you know, mass executions or not protect life, maybe in the most heinous of ways. But I do think we are, with the Terry Scheibel case, on the cutting edge of some sophisticated discussions. Uh, Matthew chapter 25, verse 40, uh, Jesus has complimented the righteous. And he said, and I'm paraphrasing here, but I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was hungry, you fed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was in jail, you came to see me. And, and the righteous are like, you know, in some measure saying, God, you're invisible. How do we do that for you? Mm -hmm. And in Matthew 25, verse 40, he said, when you did it unto the least of these, you did it to me. So Terry Schiavo, not you personally and not the listeners, but as a nation, what we did to her, we did to God himself. And so I encourage folks to maybe open your eyes. I know I have to do that and look around and say, you know, where are the least of these? How can I effectively minister to these folks and to um, be doing God's work by ministering to these people? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, th thanks for sharing that, David. It's just so incredibly discouraging to look at something like that. And it's just like, where was God during that moment, you know? Um, and I, I don't know if, like, do you, do you have thoughts to share towards that? Well, I think there's a couple of thoughts that I have, okay, and, and I'm, I'm going broad and principled here, okay? Yeah. Uh, number one, you've got to decide, you know, where does life come from, okay? And it really is a clash of worldviews. If, if someone says, well, I believe in evolution, you can justify killing a lot of people. Yeah. Quite honestly, it's survival of the fittest, strong survive, the weak, you know, hey, we don't have the money. I mean, you, you could say, you know, everybody over 75 is gone. I mean, you could almost be Hitler-esque 
if you're going to take the extreme evolutionary perspective. Whereas you say, no, we were made by an almighty God. We're made in his image. We have value. We're controlled uh, by his rules, his book, and certainly blessed by the, his son being our savior. Um, every life has value. So you see, number one, the clash of worldviews. And I would encourage Christians, they say, oh, we believe life's from God. But I wouldn't want to live like that. And you got to stop for a moment and say, well, number one, you don't know what you want until you're in the situation. So yeah. to, to Tay, if somebody says, Mr. Gibbs, you want to be in a wheelchair? Nope. But if that through accident, disability, disease is where I end up, um, I don't want to be there. But that doesn't mean that wasn't God's plan for me. And I need to um, you know, be willing to accept both the good and the difficult in my life. And so I think some Christians have almost got a sense of entitlement, like I'm hmm. entitled to a blessing. Yeah. Um, I had one fellow come up to me, and it was an interesting conversation. Um, he said, my brother was way worse than Terry Shiloh. And I said, what do you mean? He said, severely disabled from birth, never recognized anybody, never never knew who he was, knew who we were, never, I mean, our family, we, we had to spend all this money to care for him, take him around. He was kind of in a, like a wheelchair stroller type thing as he would grow. And we were constantly having to care for him. But I mean, he couldn't do anything. And, and it was just constant care for our family. And I was prepared for him to say something like, well, it would have been better for us if we had either let him go or not had him. But his response startled me because he said, and I just am so thankful for my brother. Hmm. And I'm saying, well, why do you say that? And I really was wanting to hear because it, it was so counterculture. Yeah. He said, my brother is what kept our family close. My brother is what kept our family in church. Our, my brother is what gave us the heart to help other people. Mm. And he says, I can't imagine where we would be or if we would even know Christ if we didn't have my brother. He yeah. said, I have no doubt God had a huge plan and a will for my brother to be in our lives. Yeah, yeah. What what a great testimony. And what, what an encouragement, I think, too, just to those that are listening that are experiencing similar situations with loved ones. Uh, let's let's make a transition here. After the Shivo case, you then created the National Center for Life and Liberty, and you've already touched on it a little bit, but can you tell us more about the organization and, and what y'all do? National Center for Life and Liberty um, has the three facets that I mentioned earlier. Number one, we go to court. Uh, number two, we work on policy. And number three, we try to be a voice in the culture. Uh, courtroom, we are defending churches and nonprofit organizations, so we're defending a lot of that. We represent individuals in their cases. It could be in the workplace. Uh, we're representing right now a law enforcement officer that was uh, demoted for inviting a coworker to church. Hmm. You know, those type of situations. Yeah. It could be a parental case, um, so the individual cases. And then some cases that uh, we call in the public interest. Um, this would often be a government entity. Uh, we're currently representing a number of counties over the issue of can you uh, have a prayer at your meeting that mentions the name of Jesus. And mm. so th that would be kind of the litigation world. Uh, then on the public policy world, uh, we work state by state um, with uh, different groups. So like uh, in the state of Texas, we might 
assist Texas Right to Life or Texas Homeschool Coalition or different groups. So we provide legal support on an as-needed or requested basis, and we have partners in different states. And then we also meet in Washington uh, with the White House and the Congress. And again, our focus there is faith and family. But one item that's probably a little unique to us as well is we're big believers in limited government. Hmm. I don't care whether it's Barack Obama, Donald Trump, or whoever else is in the White House. Um, they should read the Constitution before they do things. And then the voice in the culture um, through uh, radio, television, podcasts like this. Also, uh, do a lot of speaking in churches. I'll be in about 100 churches a year. Wow. And then uh, seminars uh, where we will train a couple thousand churches. So I would say on an annualized basis, between the training and then legal support, we're probably touching... Um, four to 5,000 churches a year in wow. the United States uh, with um, practical either legal defense or help. So uh, we stay busy with all of that, and we're honored to do it. The passion of the NCLL is back to that motto that I, I drive. If it's wrong, we're going to fight it. If it's right, we'll fight for it. And that can, even from day to day, be a changing paradigm. I mean, you look at just how quickly things have changed. You know, you look here at the state of Texas, um, you know, um, homosexual conduct was deemed criminal, and then one lawsuit says, no, you can't do that, and now it's a protected right, and then you look at marriage being redefined, and, and so churches, ministries, individuals are dealing with issues that I don't think they would have even anticipated, yeah. you know, just even a generation ago. And we're watching where even ministry organizations are being, I think, falsely labeled as hate groups and, and being castigated and somebody says well you know name calling is name calling you know they call you hate group just deal with it and if that was the only consequence i might agree but the problem is you know you can't be a hate group and be tax exempt so you could lose your government benefits um people get an image of what a hate group is you think violence you think you know you don't think someone preaching the bible and then internet service providers can deny you services so all of a sudden, you don't have a website, you don't have Facebook, you don't show up in any Google searches. And, and I often say to people that, you know, um, are in the situation, it's not a front of the bus or back of the bus to quote uh, the famous civil rights uh, Rosa Parks in Alabama situation. This is literally, will we be allowed on the bus? Yeah. Will Christians, ministries, uh, will podcasts like yours, Paul, uh, remain free? just like everybody else, you know, obviously, you know, I understand we don't want, you know, pornographic trash being put out, or we don't want people that are advocating violence or hate to necessarily be able to spew. But when you say conversations about the Bible, conversations about biblical truth, conversations about things our nation was founded upon are now being castigated as inappropriate, um, we are in a, a interesting moment in American history, and I'm really fighting hard for the free speech, the freedom of religion of the Christian community to just be able to have a voice in the marketplace of ideas as opposed to being banished to alternate mediums or being put in a situation where we're not able to um, be freely engaged in this ever more interconnected, um, really, internet universe. Yeah, yeah. David, I really appreciate you just joining us for this conversation. It's been super important what you've shared and everything. For those that are listening and want to know how can they get involved, uh, whether it's like, hey, I'm not an attorney, but I'm, I want to support what you're doing, 
Um, or maybe they are an attorney. Uh, what's a way that they can get involved? Uh, there's a number of things they can do. First of all, everybody can pray. So even if you don't connect with me, um, you know, consider praying and you can put down NCLL and just, you may not know, but you can pray for the cases. Uh, you certainly can uh, connect with us. We'll send you information, newsletters. Maybe you're involved in church. You need some information. You know, right now, church security is an important topic. Child protection is an important topic. What documents do I need? So if there's things we can do to help you or your church, you can reach out to us as well. Uh, maybe you're just an individual. You say, I'd like to financially support. We're always grateful. You know, I, I say fundraising is a bucket with a hole in the bottom. you got to throw more <laughs> in the top than it's falling out the bottom. And so uh, if folks could stand with us, we'd be grateful. And, and I'll just give a couple easy ways. Uh, NCLL.org or text the word LIBERTY to 313131, and that will let you easily connect with us. And, and let me say this too, Paul. I know you um, sacrificed to put this together. Uh, I'm certainly honored to uh, be part of your podcast, uh, believe in what you're doing, and believe it's important. And uh, I believe good people need to be bold uh, with good information. Uh, so I always use Acts 429. You know, the early church said, Lord, Behold their threatenings, and there was a lot for them back then. Yeah, and then they prayed, "Grant unto thy servants that with all boldness we'd speak the truth of your word." And so I, um, I'm honored to try to be bold, whether it's in a courtroom, legislative hall, church pulpit, or wherever the Lord places me. Uh, but thank you uh, for being bold in your faith and your witness and your walk uh, with your podcast and wanting to be the the man of God God's called you to be and to influence others. Well, thank you, and thank you for joining the show. We really appreciate your time. My privilege. David's story about Terry's fight for life is a chilling reminder that we live in a lost and broken world, yet we can find courage in knowing that our God reigns on the throne. Our enemy is great, but our Savior is far, far greater. To learn more about David and the National Center for Life and Liberty, visit ncll.org. You can also find more information by visiting our website, compelledpodcast.com, and searching for this episode. We'll include links to several books that David has written, including one about Terry Schiavo's case called Fighting for Dear Life, and a link to a short documentary that David made on the same topic. We'll also include a link to a Facebook post where you can join the conversation about this episode. If you have questions or feedback, we'd love to hear them. Also, David has donated an autographed copy of his book Fighting for Dear Life and several other books and materials that we'll be giving away in a drawing at the end of this week. As a side note, there's a whole set of DVDs and printed materials dealing with legal issues facing churches and ministries today that would make a great gift for any pastor or ministry leader. To enter the drawing, simply leave a comment on our Facebook post or share it. To find other episodes of our podcast, visit our website, compelledpodcast.com. You can also find our episodes by subscribing to Compelled on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, and many other podcast platforms. New episodes are released every Tuesday. If you've enjoyed our podcast, then we'd really appreciate it if you'd share it with some friends. Leaving a review and a five-star rating on iTunes or Facebook would also be a big blessing. It's one of the key ways that new listeners can find our show. Our show was edited by Zach Fowler, a gifted film editor, visual effects artist, and storyteller. You can find Zach and his work at ZachFowlerImagery.com. Our logo was designed by Josiah Jost, an incredibly talented logo designer. You can reach Josiah and view his work at SiaDesign.com. Our website was created by Ben Phillips, a digital developer extraordinaire. You can follow Ben on Instagram at Ben.Phillips. 
Special thanks to my wife, Sarah Hastings, for helping make this project a reality. Without her, this podcast wouldn't exist. And that's it for this episode. Stick around after the music for a sneak peek at our next episode. Our guests will be Rob and Heidi Fuller as they share their adoption journey, which has showcased the hand of God through times of overflowing joy and gut-wrenching heartbreak. I'm your host, Paul Hastings, and you've been listening to Compelled. We'll see you next Tuesday. And so I'm saying this over and over in my mind, you know, do what you want, God. I know the purpose is that you be preeminent. And the doctor came in and he and Rob and I are sitting there holding hands and I have no clue what I'm looking at on the screen because it makes no sense to me. But he says, how many embryos did they implant? And we said two. And he says, well, I am looking at three perfectly healthy babies right here. It was pure joy. Wow, what a conversation. Um, you know, I um, really uh, listened to this one twice, you know, Raz, and, and I know I sent it to you to tell you I wanted to have it on the podcast and, and you were excited to um, listen to it as well. But it just is amazing. Again, I, what I want to stress to our listeners and to Texans specifically is the fact that, you know, when we hear these stories, it gets, um, it kind of gets you angry. It, it, it really gives you, and it makes you sad that people could devalue life to such an extent. Um, but the reality is that we had a, a situation here and I think we've talked about this on the podcast, but Carolyn Jones, who was a patient at Memorial Hermann hospital in Houston and Memorial Hermann tried to end her life several times, um, until she was literally moved. I mean, Texas right to life literally went and commissioned a, um, an ambulance to get her out of the hospital. It's just a phenomenal story. But the reality is that we have patients in Texas and that have had this same situation happen to them, but they don't even have a family member. You know, in Terry Schiavo's situation, there was this disagreement, right, amongst the family on whether or not her life was valuable and should be kept, um, and whether she should be kept alive. But the reality is we have times in Texas where every family member wants to keep their loved one alive and the hospital disagrees and overrides that and refuses life sustaining treatment. And so um, that's why I wanted to have this conversation. And I want to take an opportunity from now till 2020 and 2021 to bring some of these stories to light so that y'all can understand that we have a battlefront. If this, if this story uh, makes you sad, makes you mad, once makes you want to make sure that our laws protect life, then you're going to have an opportunity to do that. And you need to go to texasrighttolife.com. You need to sign up for their updates. You need to engage with them. You need to tell them, I want to help anytime an issue of the end of life comes up. You know, they were raising money to help fund Carolyn Jones' expenses to keep her alive um, because the hospital was refusing to do that. So there's a lot of opportunities that many of you will have. Raz, what were some of your, you know, key takeaways post-conversation? Like I mentioned at the beginning, this really changed how you know what I thought about the case. Um, you know, at, at, look, looking back at when this was playing out in real time a couple of decades ago, um, it was not nearly so clear to me as far as her physical condition. It, it seemed like it was a whole lot muddier in my remembrance as far as whether or not um, her husband should be able to have the authority to, to withdraw care. Um, when you hear David talking about the condition she was in, the ulterior motives that Michael Shivo had, it becomes a lot clearer that this was this was a very cut and dried case, but not at all in the way that the the courts decided it. And you know, looking at the way this played out, the the courts were it sounds like were so 
jealous to protect their authority, that in the face of all kinds of legislative and public support uh, on one side, they wanted to say, screw you guys, we're going to kill her. And my gosh, I mean, it's just horrible. But when we look Mm -hmm. at what's going on today and how these these cases have a lot of, uh, they're very important for us to be aware of because as you mentioned, this is this is going to become a bigger and bigger problem in the future. And it also touches on the government's involvement in healthcare because at a certain point, the government's going to assert that if they're paying for all this stuff, that they have a, that there's a public right, a public good involved in deciding whether or not some of these treatments are accessible to folks. And that, that card's going to get played. And it's incredibly concerning when we see governments, private corporations like hospitals making these kind of decisions over the, the interest of the family and their wishes that's horrific. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Guys, um, again, I just want to mention that Paul Hastings uh, was kind enough to give us this conversation for our podcast, but he just actually, I believe tomorrow, so we're releasing this episode on Monday, and and he will be tomorrow on Tuesday launching his second season of his podcast, Compelled. And um, anyways, if you're somebody of faith and a believer, you will be greatly encouraged. All of his discussions are not around politics and policy like this one was. Many are just with people um, who have just encountered the Lord in powerful ways. And so please go over and and follow his podcast and subscribe to his podcast. Go to compelledpodcast.com and put your email in there and he'll email you new episodes as they come out. Um, But before you do that, do not do it if you have not subscribe to the Luke Messias show first. <laughs> so please make sure That's you right. subscribe, make sure you review uh, and share it with people you know in Texas. Guys, we have been really encouraged that our podcast has just continued to grow in its listenership and engagement and the encouragement that I've received from so many people who write in and email in and Facebook message in. Um, their feedback. I appreciate it. But if you have not subscribed, if you haven't reviewed, that just helps our content get to you quicker, but it also helps our content get to other Texans quicker. So leaving a review and writing that review is very helpful. Please do that. Thank you so much for uh, taking time to listen to this. Thank you for engaging in the fight. Um, God bless you. Thank you for listening to The Luke Messiah Show. If you value this content and want our message to spread, please consider three of the following steps. One, subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to us on and leave us a review. Two, visit lukemessias.com and sign up for our email alerts. And three, follow Raz and I on Twitter and visit my Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Texas. Again, that's facebook.com forward slash Texas. Thank you so much and God bless.